thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode. Hello and welcome to the Football Digest podcast. I'm your host Connor Bromley and I'm joined today by Ryan Taylor and we are going to talk all things Premier League and I suppose with all things Premier League this weekend it's all things VAR because that is the hot topic of discussion um, so we're going to start straight away we'll just jump straight into it Liverpool against or Spurs against Liverpool I should say um, it was a good game an interesting game marred by some questionable refereeing decisions we'll start with the offside decision though Ryan what was your initial thoughts as you were watching that game? Were you shocked that the decision went that way? And did you also trust the process of VAR and think, well, they must have a different camera angle to show that that was offside? Or did you immediately think they've made a massive error here and this is going to be a real serious blow up? Well, it's one of them. You, st- you st- almost start to question yourself. But my, my immediate reaction was he he's definitely onside. Um, however, you do... Although it seems crazy at the time, because you know, in your head you are saying he he's onside. You do trust in the technology ultimately, because you feel as though they have completed checks thoroughly. Obviously, we didn't see the lines, which is where the sort of doubts start to creep in. But I feel like it was such a whirlwind game that it all just feels like a blur, really. In in truth, the amount of sort of controversial calls there were, not not just the offside. Um, and I'm not specifically talking about the red card because I do believe that was a red card from from Curtis Jones. Um, but yeah, you you trust in the technology, but immediately something told me that was not right. It looked definitely onside. And to be fair, there's been a few of those in the sort of past year to eighteen months. But ultimately, in the end, there's always a, a justification with a, an angle that shows you that someone is offside. Uh, but on this occasion, it didn't appear to be the case. And you know, ultimately, this is a, a high-profile mistake and one that does feel incredibly significant because it's the first time, really, we've seen a, you know, a huge error that has had such a, a massive impact on a on a game. Do you think now there's going to be an issue around trust? You know, because I think people generally looked at VAR, particularly on offsides. Normally, you just go, "Well, they've looked at it, they've drawn the lines. Yes, it, he's a toe off, but he's still offside. That's fine." Do you think now that there's going to be serious questions from fans as to whether or not we can trust that this VAR can actually make the correct decisions and do what it was intended to do, which was to eradicate, you know, clear and obvious errors? Massively, because realistically, offside should be black or white. You know, it's not, you're either onside or you're offside. So I think, you know, generally speaking, it shows that there has been a, a lapse in the in the technology, which is something that, you know, generally speaking, I know we've had quite a few controversial calls that are tight and you know, people say there's the line in the right place. But, you know, when someone is genuinely quite clearly onside and it gets given offside, there, there is going to be a breakdown of trust. Um, I would personally like to see the Premier League adopt the technology used in Europe. Um, the offside technology in Europe seems to be very conclusive. It's not a case of, of drawing lines. I think the lines, is, it's always been an issue for me, to be honest. You know, we, as I mentioned, we've seen certain calls where you do sort of question whether the line's in the right place. And, you know, particularly when the camera's slightly slanted from a, a difficult angle, it really does seem to be you know, quite a complex uh, 
quite a complex sort of um, process to to actually draw up, you know, who's in the right place and, and adjust to that. Where I think, you know, as I, I've mentioned time and time again, really, I, I feel like Saturday was clearly, you know, you could clearly see that Luis Diaz was on side. So uh, I, I do think that breakdown of trust is now going to be an issue. And what I also think is going to be a problem is I think these officials are going to panic now when there's a, a big call and they, um, you know, they, they're meant to be drawing the lines in the VAR studio. I feel like they're going to feel under so much pressure now that it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's going to cause so many problems. Um, so it is a huge concern, to be honest, moving forward. What do you think Liverpool will do from this? Because they said they're going to explore the range of options available, giving the clear need for escalation in resolution. Now, I don't really understand how anything can change from this in terms of that game. I don't know what Liverpool's end game is. Is it just to receive more apologies? Because they're not going to replay the game. You know, we've seen VAR make disastrous decisions before. I remember Aston Villa essentially stayed up in the, the first pandemic season when Sheffield United scored that goal in the, the Hawkeye or the, uh, the goal now, but the, the, uh, the thing that checks the line, that said that the goal hadn't went in, but it was because it wasn't turned on or it missed it because there was a player in the way. So what can Liverpool actually do and what's the actual point for them? You know, they've had the apology. We all know the decision was wrong. What can actually change from now? Are they just wasting their time pursuing whatever it is they want? Well, I, I saw what Gary Neville wrote following the apology and I have to say, I don't really agree with that because it's not a case of looking to, you know, rival fans are saying, do you want a replay or something? It, it's not the case. What Liverpool were, to me, the, the way I perceived it is that they, they want change and they want this to be a, a sort of line in the sand for improvement and ultimately, you know, PGMOL to, to come together and, and maybe you know, speak to to the 20 Premier League clubs and and decide whether, you know, VAR is something that should be continued to be used moving forward. You know, how can they implement changes that ensure such decisions are eradicated? Um, Because ultimately, I know it's a a subject of of mockery from rival fans, but, you know, Liverpool are a side that you would expect probably to be in the top four or potentially running for the title this season. And, And, you know, these points do have some some bearing on final standings. I mean, you know, you can't necessarily say if, if the Diaz goal was awarded, Liverpool still, you know, wouldn't have lost the game or they would have drawn or they would have won. But, you know, you, at the top, top level, you don't expect these these calls to and mistakes to take place. And, and they do shape, you know, matches. And it, it's not just Liverpool. So, you know, when Liverpool complain and, you know, rival fans sort of say, take your medicine, I feel like it's a, a logical step maybe to, you know, that's going to benefit not just Liverpool, but, you know, all of, all of the, the 20 clubs. And, you know, what can be done is, a, is another question altogether. I, I don't know, you know, realistically, whether Liverpool's complaint is going to amount to anything. But I think ultimately there does need to, if these sort of calls continue to take place, I, I would like to see a sort of a, a decision made on whether technology is used moving forward. Because ultimately, as many people have mentioned in the past few days, was brought into in in chase of per, uh, perfection, sorry, and it's just not improved the game at all. And it's it's still creating a number of problems. You know, human this went down as a human error, but you know, a human error is something that happened before VAR when a referee or or linesman didn't see something. So effectively, we've not really, you know, it's not really serving its cause and purpose. So 
I would like to see maybe at the end of the season, you know, the 20 Premier League clubs have a vote on whether they want to use VAR moving forward. Um, whether that happens, I don't know. But yeah, that's just my personal view on, on the situation. I mean, the Football League operates without VAR. And, you know, as somebody who watches a lot of Football League, I, I understand that there's occasionally there's big decisions. But even, you know, I think of my club, Sunderland, and I think last season, I can probably point to maybe two ridiculous decisions that cost us points in games. But I think with VAR, it's the same sort of thing. We still watch match of the day or watch the highlights of games and the talking points are still refereeing decisions, which suggests to me that we we aren't, we haven't really made any progress. Because also what happens now is it's the same thing with the Curtis Jones red card. I think that was a red card, but you watch the game, Gary Neville, he's going, no, it's not a red card. That's ridiculous. And it's subjective. I'm not saying Gary Neville's right or wrong. You know, we all have opinions on football, all have opinions on refereeing decisions. To me, you know, we were trying to fix a problem that wasn't really there because TV companies like to talk about refereeing decisions, which blew up, you know, these big decisions as though, you know, that we could fix them, but there was no way that we could fix them. And I think that the PGM, well, you know, I think they've, they've made the mistake of thinking, right, we need to go with these TV companies because they think that we can get every decision right. And I just don't think it's realistic for us to expect referees and VAR because football's so subjective to get these decisions right. But I think that's why this decision is even worse because this isn't subjective, you know, and the fact that they, they said it was a communication issue where the, the VAR believed that the goal had been given on the pitch. So they said, you know, yeah, okay, it's fine. Carry on. That just seems mind boggling to me. And why can't they go back when the game kicks off and say, oh, actually stop the game. That shouldn't, that sh- that was a goal. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I, I don't know. I don't know what you think. I mean, it's a bit of a rant from my end. No, but- I totally agree. I totally agree. I think you're right. Um, and another point I'd probably make is my personal feeling is I don't like to to slaughter referees because ultimately I, I feel like you know I would I wouldn't want to be a referee. So you know I can sympathise that you know I can't even begin to imagine the amount of pressure they're under when they make these big calls, but. I just ultimately think that the referees we have in the Premier League aren't up to scratch. Because if you look at the World Cup, for instance, um, I might be wrong, but I don't remember any high-profile VAR mistakes. Um, if you look at the World Cup final, some of the calls that were made by the, the Polish referee, Demanski, I think his name is, under so much pressure, were, were absolutely spot on. So whether it's a case of, you know, like players, we bring in the top-level referees, I know that's a subject that's caused a level of debate in recent days but I would personally be in favour of that I think some of these referees again I don't like to you know you don't want to sort of feel like you're contributing towards abuse to them but they're just not good enough I mean if you look at the game last night Fulham Chelsea I don't know if you saw Carlos Vinicius literally karate chopped Thiago Silva on the back of the neck off the ball Um, and it's not even it's just a blatant red card for violent conduct and they don't seem to have the I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it's the sort of the mental strength to to sort of bring themselves to to make such a because it is a significant call. But you know, just watching that from the from my settee, you know, you can see that's a a red card. But still, things like that are being missed, which is just mind boggling to me. Okay, we'll we'll switch from from VAR because you know we could go here all day. I could go here all day talking about refereeing. Um, 
you mentioned Chelsea there though. That was a big win for them. I mean, I texted a few of my friends before the game in a joking way, saying like, you know, if they get beat today, are we are we talking about Chelsea as a relegation candidate? You know, because they would have been really, really um, up the creek without a paddle. That was a much needed win, though, wasn't it for Chelsea? And also good to see Mudrick getting on the score sheet as well, because he's had a tough sort of eight nine months since he's arrived at Stamford Bridge. Yeah, absolutely. I think. To be honest, I've, I've felt like it's been coming for Chelsea, although they haven't, um, you know, you might look at their results and say it hasn't because they've played so poorly. I feel like it was only a matter of time before something clicked. Um, and to be fair, I think Fulham really put it on a plate for him that sort of the manner of the defending for both goals was was really poor. Um, but, you know, when you have a team like Chelsea where there's so much talent in the side, it is only a matter of time before something clicks. And, you know, whether this leads to, to a, a decent run, I'm not so sure because Chelsea are the sort of team at the moment that could go and lose again on on Saturday or whenever they play next. Um, so um, going on Mudrick, again, similar to what I've just said on Chelsea, I feel like it was only a matter of time. I feel like he's a player just short of confidence at the moment. If he can get a couple of games under his belt, and a few goals, I feel like we'll see the best version of Madrid. I, I saw him quite a few times in the Champions League with Shakhtar against Leipzig and, and Celtic last season. Got so much ability, he tore them to shreds. Um, obviously, he went off at half-time with an injury, which is a concern. Caicedo took a whack at the end as well. So it, it does feel like Chelsea are just having a little bit of bad luck at the moment with injuries. So I'm sure, you know, once they get main a lot of their main players back, they, they might start to improve. But I still think top four is a stretch for them this season. I don't know how you feel about that. Well, they've got Burnley coming up this weekend away and it feels like that's a an important game for them. Because I think if they could get two wins just before the international break, people would start thinking uh, that they've got a chance of being higher in the table. I don't think that Chelsea top four is realistic. I think they'd be... I'd, if I was them, I'd be happy to finish sixth. You know, if they can get ahead of an Aston Villa or a Brighton or a Newcastle, I think they should be pretty happy with this season. Manchester United, what on earth's going on there? You know, it's just it's a shambles, isn't it? From last year, I sort of looked at Man United and thought, right, I can see the plan here. And it, it seems to happen a lot with them that the first season a manager comes in, he, he fixes things and you think, right, they're going to start building and they're going to start putting them founda- the foundations there. They just need to add, tinker, you know, improve the team. And they're it's just a shambles. I, I've got no other word. I, I just can't believe how poor they look this season. Yeah, I, th- I totally agree. Uh, a few of my mates said to me at the start of the season when we were doing our predictions, I, I fancy United to to be third or, or something this season. I just couldn't see it. I, I didn't. I, I don't know what it was. I think it was the recruitment, but I don't feel like United are any better than they were last season. And they've spent, you know, in excess of £180 million or, or something like that. I think... Mason Mount looks a terrible fit for United. You know, ultimately, his best position is the number 10. And they've, they've got Bruno Fernandes. So, I have no idea, you know, what the thinking was with that signing. Um, obviously, Onana's had his struggles, but I still think he'll probably, you know, come good. And Hoyland was a, a lot of money for a young kid that, you know, as we've seen so far, is not necessarily going to guarantee goals. I know he's going to improve. And, you know, over time, he probably will become a, a fine young striker. But when you're paying that sort of money, you know, I'm expecting someone to come in that's going to get you 30 goals a season. Um, and ultimately, he's not going to do that. So, I, I just feel like the recruitment was poor. And obviously, there's been a lot of personnel problems behind the scenes with, um, you know, you've had the Greenwood situation. Now you've had the, the Anthony situation. And um, 
some reason I feel like there's other stuff the managers had to deal with as well. But Jaden Sancho, Jaden Sancho, that's the one. Yeah. yeah, I mean that that hasn't helped at all because you know Sancho's someone that they should be contributing really. Um, so it's just a, a circus really, and it's you know it's one of those situations where it makes you know I've always sort of said to a few of my United supporting mates, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson, the days of Sir Alex Ferguson are never going to be repeated again because that was just the ultimate pinnacle. And unfortunately, you start to sense that this is where United are at, you know, for the foreseeable future now, because you've had multiple managers, you know, spent bundles of cash. Um, I know supporters will argue that the Glazers are, are to blame, but I do feel like when you spend £180 million and almost regress, then there is a technical staff, you know, and recruitment sort of uh, frailties there. So, yeah, I, I don't know how you feel, but... Again, I, I see Chelsea, uh, United as a team that are going to struggle like Chelsea this season. Not I, I think they will probably miss out on top four. No, I would agree with that. I think you look at um, you know Newcastle in particular. I mean, as a Sunderland fan, it would pay me to say it, but they look like they're sort of coming back to what they were last season. They had a dodgy start. They had a horrendous fixture list to begin the season. I just look at Man United. I don't and understand they've got issues off the pitch. They've got a lot of issues off the pitch and that doesn't help. You know, I, I think that the ownership problems will affect things on the pitch, but I, I don't think that there's, there's a correct way of operate. The, the football club doesn't operate correctly because the, the recruitment to me feels like quite scattergun, you know, 10 hog, the, the money they spent on Anthony was just mind blowing. You know, he is such an average player. You know, he's, he's a, seven out of 10, you know, he's a, he'd, he'd fit well in the West Ham team kind of player. I just don't know why they entrusted him to spend that sort of money. There should be somebody there. You look at how Man City operate and you look at how Manchester United operate. Man United should just be copying Man City, like go out, get a director of football who you can trust to bring the players in and have a head coach who has a say, of course, on transfers, but can actually just coach the team. That, that to me would make a lot of sense. And it just seems so scattergun at Manchester. I, I I don't know what the answer is, but I feel like the answer will only come when they get correct ownership. I mean, the thing is, there's no guarantee when ownership changes. Look at Chelsea. You know, you could get an owner that comes in that spends a lot of money, but doesn't have an actual plan. Yeah, so grass isn't always greener, but yeah, it, it's not great. They've got Galatasaray in, in midweek in the Champions League. Is that a nice fixture for them to get back to winning ways? <laughs> Again, I feel like it's one of those that looks a great fixture on paper, but now if Wilfred Zaha put Galatasaray one new up in the first 20 minutes, it wouldn't surprise me. So I don't know. At the moment for United, I don't think any fixture is an easy fixture. Um, I looked at that Palace game at the weekend and despite them beating them convincingly 3-0 in the, in the Carabao Cup, I knew that would, would be a walk in the park. The Premier League is so difficult now. I feel like unless you're playing one of those sort of bottom four sides with all due respect to them, I don't think you're in for a, an easy afternoon. And even those sides can, can serve up a, a banana skin. Um, and when you're struggling for confidence and you're under pressure and you're seeing like, it seems like you're only one loss from a crisis. I feel like, you know, any, any match in the Premier League is, is difficult on paper, particularly when you're, you know, out of form. So, I feel like Galatasaray are going to cause United problems. I think they've got a lot of dangerous players, particularly in an attacking sense that, you know, if United aren't at the races, they, they could punish them. Um, Zaha, they've got Hakim Ziyech, uh, Dries Mertens, there's a Mauro Icardi. I know he missed that sitter the other day from the, the past penalty, but 
know, these are all players that have played at a, a very substantial level, you know, in, in Europe's top five leagues. I know they're getting on a bit now, some of them, but um, again, I feel like if, if United win, I feel like it will probably be a, a narrow victory. I can't see it being convincing. Um, but then again, sometimes these games go the other way and, you know, it might be um, everything clicks for United. Man City, their neighbours, they were actually having a, a sticky time with themselves. They lost that game at Newcastle last week where they, they passed them off the park in the first half without creating any real chances. And then second half, Newcastle decided to you know press a bit high and uh, cause them problems. And then at the weekend, Wolves managed to, I would say Gary O'Neill, did he tactically outthink Pep Guardiola that's a sentence I don't know I think I would ever say but Wolves very good managed to, to pick up the 2-1 win is is it a mini crisis at Man City or is it just two difficult away games and they've not had the rub of the green I think this this always happens with City really in the early parts of the season you can expect them to, to drop points I know that's not been the case in the opening six matches but City never really hit top top gear until the business end of the season I think Pep Guardiola will be satisfied with what he's seen so far from his players. Um, ticked off quite a few sort of fixtures that you might look at that, that could be problematic. The lots of West Ham away, Wolves away, obviously they did, um, didn't pick up a, a point there. But I, I still feel like City, uh, they've got another level to go yet. So I don't think it will be a concern. I feel like the, these sort of wobbles do happen and you know, they're still top of the pile, so it's not really a problem. But I feel like Leipzig are a team that, you know, could, could potentially cause some problems. I feel like they've got so many good players going forward, particularly this season, because they've, they've brought in a crop of new players, the likes of uh, Xabi Simmons, Benjamin Sesko, um, Lewis Appender as well, who was at Lons last season. So I feel like that will be a game where both teams go at it. Um, you still expect City to win, but I feel like it's a bit of a stretch probably at the moment to call it a a mini crisis, um, even by City standards, you know, back-to-back defeats is a rarity. Um, but I still think City are the strongest, probably the best team in the world, um, if I'm being perfectly honest. They've got Arsenal at the weekend away. So I can just, I can see how this can turn into a bit of a mini crisis because if they, let's say the draw midweek and then against Arsenal, they don't win. That's four games that'll win. And I don't know if that's ever happened under Pep since that first season. Yeah, that's right, actually. And, you know, when you say it like that, you, you'd probably expect them to maybe look at resting a few players in midweek as well. So, you know, there's a, an element there that City won't be its full strength. I still feel like, you know, Sunday's game is absolutely huge, but I, I've not really been totally convinced by Arsenal yet this season. But I think Saturday was a sign that they're starting to, to click now after a sort of a, a strange start to the season, really, because I've, I've never really felt like Arsenal have played really well but you know they've done pretty they're unbeaten ultimately I believe um so and you look at it and you know City aren't going to drop many points in a season and if you want to be champions above them you've got to beat them at home I think that's the the bread and butter for Arsenal but you know I'm I'm still not convinced Arsenal will do it so I feel like it'd be interesting um but we'll have to wait and see
Let's look then to some of the Champions League games in midweek. Arsenal, you just mentioned there. Uh, Kai Havertz got a goal at the weekend and that was an interesting decision to give him a penalty. Do you think that'll give him a confidence boost? You would imagine he'll, he'll start against Lons in midweek and could maybe you know, add a, a second goal to his tally and really give him that boost after that big money move. Yeah, I feel like Havertz is a, a weird one because the criticism is, you know, I've been critical of Havertz and, and the transfer itself, but it's almost sort of, you do question whether it's borderline sort of being unfair on him because it, it's still early days. But the reason I've been critical of Havertz is, is just because, well, not so much Havertz, but the, the deal itself. To me, it's just always been an uncomfortable fit. You know, you look at his final um, months and, and even seasons at Chelsea and he, he didn't really seem to fit in anywhere um, and that's a problem that's been replicated at Arsenal so you do sort of question whether that was the right move to bring someone like him in um, but Arsenal are now playing with you know one six and, and two eights um, and although they've done that last season you know Xhaka was a player that could help the ga- affect the game at both ends of the field whereas his Havertz is very much an attacking player um, but I feel like Arteta will get the best from him. I feel like it's only a matter of time, really, before we start to see Havertz perform. But the question marks I have is the, the consistency. Um, I feel like we, we know Havertz can be a 9 out of 10 because we've seen it a few times. I remember I was at the Chelsea Dortmund game last season at Stamford Bridge and Havertz was a joy to watch. It was sublime. Um, but you don't get those kind of performances too often from him. And you know, if Arsenal have aspirations of winning the title, they need more from a a player that's cost him 65 million. Um, and ultimately, you know, it sounds brutally harsh, but I'd expect a, a 65 million player to score from the penalty spot. So I don't think it's time to get carried away there. Um, but I feel like there have been improvements. I feel like it was good against Brentford in the cup. Um, and he had looked a little bit lost, particularly in the United game uh, a month or so ago. It, it really looked a, a difficult fit for the international break. But there, there are promising signs now. So, yeah, I feel like Havertz could could start to put together a run now. Do you think his best position? You know, this is a, this is always the problem with Kai Havertz. Is you, you ask somebody where is he best played, and nobody knows. To me, I feel like he would be better off playing up front with another striker. That that seems the most logical place for me because he's big. He's got a physical presence. He, you know, he scores headers. I would think if you stuck him, you know, a bit deeper than another striker, that would be the ideal place for him. But you're right in what you say. Arsenal kind of put him with Martin Odegaard and he's, he's still classed as a midfielder and not a forward. Do you think that's, that's a big issue for Arsenal? I feel like the, the issue is more the fact that Havertz's best position, which to me is like, as you say, a second striker, sort of in between a nine and a 10, it doesn't exist in their formation. So, you know, ultimately there isn't really a spot for him. However, I, I would also agree with what you just said in the sense that if you're looking at this Arsenal side, I think Havertz, would probably operate best playing as you know the nine, and I know he's not a number nine, but uh, he played there against City in the Community Shield, and I was there that day, and he looked quite effective. You know, he had two really big chances which he didn't score, but I think that's where he played best for Chelsea. Obviously, when they won the Champions League, he led the line, um, and Jesus seems to be a player that can actually operate from from wide areas because he's an effective player. You know, he's not an out-and-out goal scorer, even though he is meant to be a centre-forward. So I'd like to see that tried. Um, but the problem Arsenal have is, you know, all the while Thomas Partey's injured, they, they don't really have too much depth in midfield, which is why 
well, one of the reasons why Havertz has, has been playing there because uh, they're a little bit light on the ground in that position. The plane didn't take off till nine o'clock last night for Arsenal heading uh, out to France. Do you think that'll affect things for them? Do you think it could be leggy or do you think that's just a, you know, one of them things that us pundits will overanalyze? Yeah, I don't read into that too much. I think Lons is, is barely a, a plane journey away anyway. It's, um, it's not too far from Calais. Um, and ultimately, although you're staying overnight, so, you know, in terms of maybe rest and relaxation, it might have a little bit of a bearing. They're, they're top professionals. And, you know, it's only really the press conference that it, it really causes a spanner in the works for. Otherwise, I don't see it being an issue. Um, and I don't think we'd ever know if it was an issue, to be honest, because ultimately when that whistle blows, it's 11 against 11 for 90 minutes. So um, it's, it's not going to have that much of an impact on the team that it you know, causes a, a problem in the match. Newcastle, uh, they've got PSG at St. James's Park in the Champions League. So what a, what a game for them to get back into Europe for the first time in, in 20 years or so. They defeated Burnley at the weekend. Not convincing, I didn't think. I didn't think they played particularly well and Burnley certainly had their chances. Um, do you think that almost form goes out the window in a game like this for Newcastle? I know they have picked up recently, but do you think this is going to be one of them where the crowd, the the circumstance, the the situation will create a special night at St. James's Park against a you know a European giant? Absolutely. I feel like this is a this is the kind of tie that when you see it you you get excited. I know that might not be replicated with yourself, Connor, because you're a Sunderland fan. But you know, as a neutral myself, you know, I look at that tie and you, you just think that is a that's a a game that's going to probably catch fire. Um, unfortunately, I'm at Luton Burnley tonight, so I won't be able to watch that one if that's tonight. But um, that is a game that I feel like, you know, most of Europe will stand still to watch that. Um, going back to your original point, yeah, the, the crowd are going to play a massive part. I feel like Newcastle's home form in this group stage is going to be absolutely imperative to, to qualification. You know, you need them to pick up points here because you you do think it's a tough ask to go to the Parc de France and, and pick something up. Um, that said, PSG aren't really, you know, in the scintillating sort of form we've seen from them in, in recent years. They've actually had a really poor start to the season. Um, I think prior to this weekend's results, I feel like they were sitting about fifth. Um, I'm not sure if that's changed. Um, but, you know, Newcastle, as you said, didn't really play too well against them. Um, they're still fifth now, PSG. Newcastle didn't really play too well against Burnley. They've had a few injury problems as well. See, Botman's out. Um, Isak played against Burnley, but he's been having a little bit of a problem. Wilson as well. Uh, Bruno's had a niggle. So I don't feel like this is Newcastle at, at top gear. However, I do think they've got enough in them to, to grind something out. But you know, PSG have got so much star quality. And although Neymar and Messi aren't there anymore, they, they've recruited a lot of top talent. Um, the likes of Randall Colo, Muani. Gonzalo Ramos, you know, real goal threats. You've got Mbappe. Uh, you've got some midfield technicians as well, the likes of Vitinha, who may not be a player that, you know, Newcastle necessarily fear. But when you watch this game, he'll be a player that's, you know, at the heart of it also. Big game. Um, but again, it is one of those you don't know what's going to happen. So it's, it's an element of excitement. We will be able to watch it because it's Wednesday night, Newcastle against oh, PSG. So, yeah, you'll be able to Save have that there. one with it. <laughs> yeah. Um I would also think, I mean, did you see all the the drone show that that, that were very I would say strange. I mean, I could actually see it from my house and I was a bit like, 
that's really random. Yeah. Um, I, the only thing I would say with this one is, is PSG are going to be used to these atmospheres on the. So while I think we can get almost swept away with the idea that it will be loud at St. James's Park, it will be ferocious, which could give Newcastle a boost. I don't think PSG's experienced players are going to give two hoots about an atmosphere. You know, they, they'll go in there and they'll play their game. Do you think they'll. Newcastle, the, the the difference will be the fact that the Newcastle players will possibly find another level because of the atmosphere at St. James's. Yeah, absolutely. I, t- I totally agree with what you just said there. I feel like Newcastle were one of these teams, you know, there, there is a few of them in the Premier League, not so much at the moment, Everton, but, you know, there was a period where, you know, you know when you go to, to St. James's or, or, or well, that, that's the case at the moment, but the point I'm trying to make, certain teams, you know, find that, that next level off the crowd on a, a raucous night. And I feel like Newcastle, particularly the fact they've been out of the Champions League for so long, you know, these are these are days that some supporters feared they'd never see again. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not in the northeast, obviously, like yourself, but I'd imagine it, it's the, the talk of the, the town at the moment, you know, Wednesday night's game. Uh, and, you know, every right, that, that should be the case because Newcastle, although, you know, they've been taken over by the, the Saudi-backed regime, I feel like, you know, it is commendable what they've done. I know from a sports washing perspective, that's not the case. But in terms of what Eddie Howe has built, um, you know, he's not necessarily gone out and signed £80 million superstars. You know, when the takeover first happened, it was Neymar and stuff being linked. But he's brought in smart signings like um, Dan Byrne, you know, players like that. Anthony, Anthony Gordon, I think, been really effective. I know there has been a few big money signings like Bruno and Isak, but... Actually, I, I really respect what Eddie Howe's built at, at Newcastle when I feel like, you know, the fact they can even match PSG now when a couple of years ago they were fighting two for nail for survival under Steve Bruce is a, something that should be commended despite the, um, you know, the ethical questions surrounding the takeover. Um, so I, I'm really looking forward to this game and I feel like it's one of them that it could go any way. You know, if it finished a Newcastle win, PSG win or draw, you wouldn't be surprised. So... That's that's testament to um to how far Newcastle have come in recent times. I think the thing that Eddie Howe's done is they've spent money. Yes, like they have spent a lot of money, but they they've also kept kind of a bit of the nucleus of that old team. And what he's done is he's looked at it and he's went, you know, let's we've got Callum Wilson. We need somebody up there to compliment him, so we're bringing an Isak, but we're not going to bring somebody that's going to totally overshadow him. And I think they've kind of done that all across the. I mean, Joe Willick. You know, they're missing him at the minute. That's a huge miss for them. He's such an integral player. Yeah. And I just, I like the way that he's constructed the team and they didn't go out. I remember when City got their money and they bought Rubinho and it didn't fit. You know, they just, they spent a lot of money on players that just weren't a great fit. The Rocky Santa Cruz, I remember they spent a fortune on him and Adebayor. Whereas Newcastle have been a bit more clever. I don't know if they've looked back on what Man City did and went, right, we're not going to do it that way. But to me, they've been very clever about how they've recruited players. And yeah, hurts to say that. Anyway, we're out of time, Ryan. Thanks for joining me this morning and uh, enjoy Luton Burnley. In fact, let's give us a score prediction. What do you think Luton Burnley tonight? I'm going to go 2-1 Burnley. Oh, I'm not thinking Luton will build on that that win at the weekend. I feel like Burnley have been playing well recently. And, you know, as you said earlier, they had quite a few chances at Newcastle. They seem to be playing well away from home at the moment. They played well against Forest a couple of weeks ago, so... I feel like this is a game that they can't really afford to lose. I think they're going to have a go at it. 
Yeah, not sure why it's not on the telly tonight. Pretty, pretty upset that I won't be able to watch that one. <laughs> the deal with the championship instead. Um, so yes, thanks everyone for listening. Please remember to subscribe wherever you you know listen to this podcast, and we'll catch you again later in the week.